Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we talk about moving away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. My name is Rob, and I'm the Learning Engagement Coordinator at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In this episode, the hosts Sarah and Rhaenyra are joined by Joshua Palfreman and Joseph Awuadarko. In this episode, we discuss the e-waste challenge in Africa and some of the ways in which one of the world's largest e-waste dump sites, Agbog Bloshi, could benefit from the circular economy and the social challenges that are presented to the local communities. Sarah kicked off the conversation by asking Joseph about where laptops end up once they are thrown away. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the most interesting things for me um, when I first discovered or um, unearthed um, what Abobloshi was as Africa's largest electronic waste dump site, for me, it was really, um, you know, something to behold of, uh, you know, an e-waste um, dystopia, which has about over 215,000 tons of, you know, electronic waste and other negative externalities um, put there every single, um, you know, year per, per annum. Um, there's a picture um, of me there um, for the first time with my team in an orange um, jumpsuit. Um, and if you look at that image, it just shows you that sort of the value chain in, in which um, aspects of corruption and sort of inefficiencies in the corporate worlds and tech sort of have shunned most of the e-waste towards that part of the world, which happens to be Ghana, unfortunately. Um, if you, you used the word dump site there, and I think it would be really useful for to explore why is it not a landfill? What is the difference between landfill and dump site? Because I think landfill is a term that in, here in Europe we're way more familiar with. What's the difference? I think when I say d- dump site, the way it differs in in um, Ghana, for, for example, is that it's an ecology in of itself, whereby you have um, people in the informal sector who are following through the cracks of society, dwelling mm. and working there, and sort of, um, in a way, either burning the um, parts of the e-waste components for salvaging of precious metals to then resell. But it, I think in, in this case, with a with a dump site, it's sort of like uh, an informal sector ecology in of itself, and that's what you have, um, you know, with all the negative externalities um, at Abogoshi in in Ghana. Yeah, so yeah. It, so it's not a, a engineered lined landfill that we get in many developing countries and even developed countries around the world. It's just a piece of land yeah. where a lot of waste is ending up. Exactly, like a de facto state of just a plethora of of, of electronic waste and you know just not managed in, a, in any structured form. Um, no. And why has it landed up there? I mean, why in Ghana? Why outside Accra? You know, I think there's, um, there are studies that show that a lot of more developed Western countries like the US, you know, have sort of their electronic waste shipped um, to less developed countries in the global south, which Ghana forms a part of in the sub-Saharan region. And so you typically find, um, as I previously enumerated, aspects of, you know, corruption or inefficiencies or sort of just having this um, illegal dumping of e-waste to less developed countries where infrastructure and policies aren't as um, you know, stringent, you know? 
And so th- I think that that's why they sort of end up here. Um, and that's kind of the value chain, you know, that, that it creates. And then you talked a bit about the, the informal sector. I mean, what are the sort of informal activities that are going on at the Agbablushi dump site? And what are the sort of conditions that people who are working there and undertaking those activities um, working in? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Um, there's an image whereby I'm sort of like um, on a bunch of motherboards at Agbablushi and you have, um, what you realize is that um, motherboards that are found in like discarded laptops have industrial gold. And so you have artisans um, in the informal sector working to extract that. Um, you have um, individuals burning copper wires to, to, to extract the copper in its pure form, subsequently in, inhaling the harmful carcinogens and the toxins that come with that. Um, you know, and you have heavy metals that end up polluting the ground in and of itself. So you just have all these um, really, really um, um, detrimental um, effects that come as a result of you know the human activity and the micro entrepreneurs that work in that um, sort of like de facto um, dystopian state. Um, so it's 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 quite tragic. But having said that, it's sort of like uh, it, it, it's just a huge source of livelihood for so many people who feel compelled to do that. Um, as most of the dump site is filled with daily wage earners who live below the the, the poverty line. We've had a question that's come in from YouTube that maybe I think is a good one for Josh to answer. Um, Josh, could you tell us why Africa accepts this waste and e-waste and if that really is the case? Yeah, well, I'll touch on what Joseph said. I mean, very often the dumping charges at these engineered landfills in, in Europe or United States are extremely expensive. So, it, you know, it can cost upwards of 85 US dollars to 150 US dollars or it could be completely illegal to dump that waste uh, per metric ton, sorry, at, at, at an engineered landfill. So very often the export economics of shipping that waste to another country that has a much lower uh, landfilling cost. In Tanzania and Kenya, for example, the equivalent unit is only $1.50 per metric ton to dump your waste at the landfill. Uh, so that just provides, uh, you know, at, at larger volumes, an astronomical saving uh, for these countries. Uh, but this is not meant to exist uh, for hazardous waste materials like chemicals and paints and certainly electronic waste, which has heavy metals in it. That was mm-hmm. meant to be ruled out in the Basel Convention decades ago. And a lot of this is kind of falling through the cracks, unfortunately. Thanks for that, Josh. Um, going back to you, Joseph, I wonder if you could talk to us about the opportunity that you saw in this mess that is Agroblashi. Um, Why did you start your initiative and your work on the dump site? And what really was the starting point? Well, that's a good question. So um, I, I um, studied at SSU University um, and... Part of, you know, in about 2017, um, community service hours were a prerequisite um, in a course called leadership. And um, a very important um, photographer, because I'm I'm an art patron of sorts, but a very famous um, photographer, Fabrice Monterio, um, who won the Greenpeace um, Photography Prize in, I think it was 2016 or 2017. He came to the university and asked for volunteers to help him because what he does is that he captures... Um, parts of the of the world where human beings have, you know, taken this virus role and have sort of caused negative harm to the environment. And so I went for the first time 
um, with some colleagues from um, um, university who were also studying a liberal arts program. And I thought to myself, instead of just doing something for the sake of um, academia, um, when I went um, to Agbubloshti for the first time, I was just shocked by how um, the public um, sector um, of government had sort of neglected it, you know, you know in, in a way. Um, and I thought that I could sort of galvanize change and even at least create some meaningful awareness in trying to shed light on the narrative and maybe maybe um, propagate change in that direction. And so um, my team and I um, founded the initiative. Um, my co-founder is Cynthia Mohonja, she's Kenyan, um, and she's in lockdown in Nairobi currently, I'm probably watching this. And basically, <laughs> we, 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 we um, um, decided to sort of have, um, um, sort of conduct ethno ethno ethnocentric and empirical research. Because what I find is that sometimes people have an ivory tower syndrome where they try and solve an issue without any empathy or any cognitive understanding of what's happening. And so we immersed ourselves in um, amongst the communities that are based on the dump site and the individuals who were daily wage earners there. And then we, we started implementing this um, program whereby we trained a few individuals vocationally to add value to the um, scraps of metal and another debris um, to add value instead of simply burning it to, um, um, to sell. And you know, we admit, we admit as a team in all humility that this isn't about having a one short success story. It's a very complex issue which is equally um, as geopolitical as it is socioeconomic. And so we accepted that um, um, taking steps, each iteration, each iteration of the solution would be based on our experience. And we're still learning and trying to improve that. Brilliant. I mean, it, you know, it's a, you paint a really great picture of, of your experience there and, and why you got engaged and involved. Um, and I love seeing some of your work. I think some of the stuff that's been created is amazing. But what are the challenges to scaling this? I think some, one of the things that we talk about a lot at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is the ability to scale and scale circular economy initiatives. What are your challenges to scale? I think, you know, what's, um, this is a very good question because we ask ourselves this every single time, you know, how do you keep an approach that is still human-centered and, and imbued with empathy, but still meaningfully scalable on, a, you know, on, a, on an impactful level? And I think for me, one thing I've learned is partnership. I'm, I'm a huge believer of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And I think partnership for the goals is essential in, in something like this. And so I think finding meaningful ways to sort of um, create jobs in the informal sector through um, 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 scalably upcycling the waste in a way that is eco-incentivized and responsible is important. And um, you know, we partnered we we partnered um, in the past with the World Bank's Climate Innovation Center in Ghana, and and I think for the most part, the challenge with, with scaling is sort of doing it in a way that it is sustainable, but yet eco-incentivized and. Mm. And I think there are limitations to that because of how complex the issue is, you know. Yeah. We've got a question from Twitter. Um, so before I move to, to Josh, Joseph, we'd like to ask you just one more question. And maybe, Joseph, you can, um, Josh, you can, can lead on this as well. Um, it can be very overwhelming um, to deal with these complex issues and, and to work in a place like Agbablashi. Um do you have any advice for, like, if you could go back um, and tell yourself before you started this work some things um, 
to, to help you um, with your feelings of being overwhelmed um, and working in these kinds of places, what would be the advice that you give yourself? Well, I would say this. Um, sometimes as passionate um, environmentalists um, who have larger goals of what we want to achieve, we, we forget that you can't pour from an empty cup, right? You need to have soundness of mind and focus and the and the energy to be able to do the, the, the meaningful work you carry out, right? And so I think the first thing would be not to enter um, finding a solution with a hero complex in thinking that it's going to be, uh, you are going to be the end all and be your all, all of how this issue is solved, carrying the entire burden on your shoulders. And which is why I, I sort of addressed um, one of the SDG goals as partnership for the goals, because I think that's important. And, and, and that meaningful, insightful, informed collaboration is important in understanding that as you pursue this larger than life goal and an objective, which is idyllic in some cases, you you sort of share um, um, the burden and just take care of your mental health in trying to pursue these these things. You know, because it can be overwhelming. It can be. You know. Thanks, Joseph. Josh, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I agree with Joseph. I mean, dump sites and landfills are inherently smelly and ugly to look at, but. There's a lot of silver linings that you can find there as well. If you if you really look at the materials that are in a dump site, I think of it as a commodities market that no one is really taking seriously. You know, that there's a lot of value and a lot of wealth in the ways that you can find the right way to process and valorize it. Thanks for that. Um, and I think kind of building on that, one of the big differences between the solid waste management sector in Europe and Africa is the role of the informal sector. Could you talk to us and, and describe to us a little bit about um, the informal sector and the role that it plays in Africa? Sure. So, I mean, a, a huge proportion, I would say the largest recycling force in sub-Saharan Africa is informal. And I like calling them rather than waste pickers, these micro entrepreneurs who, you know, because the cost of living and because the cost of entry and the skills barriers are, are inherently not low in waste recycling, it's a very attractive opportunity for countries that have high youth unemployment rates and low costs of living. Um, and, and so the informal sector is the largest moving force. And even though we're talking about individuals who might only be able to move between 25 and 100 kilograms of product using a non-motorized uh, trash cart or a, a kind of a, a modified uh, tricycle. Uh, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of waste pickers working in unison, uh, I mean, you're, you're talking about a, a, a massive scale that, uh, that, that municipalities and private companies wouldn't have control over independently. There's, there's been a, a really great question that's come, that, that's come in, um, and I think it links to that informal sector and the differences really well. And the question is, if Europe sorts out the circular economy, will that radically impact the livelihoods of, of the informal sector in Africa? And, and what is that relationship? Well, I mean, like we said before, waste shouldn't really be exported to Africa from Europe. I mean, Europe has a, a wealth and a tapestry of better options from waste to energy to uh, subsidized recycling systems. In Africa and in many of the countries that I've worked in, waste management is something that you can very easily get out of people's front yard and, and somewhere where the public don't, don't see it. You know, it could be behind a hill past the airport. So municipal governors are going to have to think about things that are, are more on people's front doorstep, like water and sanitation, 
education and healthcare and roads. And that's why until the sustainable development goals came out, waste management didn't even feature kind of on the priority list for donors and bilateral banks like the World Bank and the United Nations. It's really right now that we're in the renaissance of uh, this kind of uh, delayed attention on a, on a very serious issue. Definitely. And um, how how do we start fixing this kind of system problem? How can we make manufacturers and corporations understand the value that's inherently in these products um, that are ending up kind of all around the world and in places like Abablashi? Well, I think one way to do it is to to inspire young people and to kind of uh, be an advocate. Like I, I think Joseph's work is is very well presenting. And another way to think of it, I, I think a, a more sly and cunning way is to just make it so obvious within the capitalist system to, to recycle waste. Uh, and that's why if you look at things like plastic, metal, paper, and, 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 and metals, if you can separate them and source segregate them, very often they become these valuable export commodities that can take care of themselves just with a bit of public subsidy or with a bit of public support. So instead of talking about an environmental or a social or an altruistic cause, I'm talking about a no-brainer, make-money, uh, export commodity cause. And, and that's going to get a lot of people on board. And a side effect, an indirect impact of that uh, is going to be that it scratches our back, that it helps the environmental uh, advocacy that we're pushing. I mean, it would be interesting to hear a perspective from Joseph on that as well, because actually you're using the waste and you're creating value out of the waste. So I wonder if you've got a perspective that you'd like to share on us, share with us uh, on, on Sarah's question around how do we start fixing the problem? That's a good point. So um, I had basically in upcycling um, um, sort of the electronic waste to create value-added products, my approach to creating meaningful awareness um, was that I... Um, had a debut exhibition at the gallery 1957 in, in Ghana, whereby I worked with artisans there to sort of upcycle um, and create pieces inspired by Marcel Duchamp's ready-made concept. And from the money we made from the sale of of, of those pieces um, with the gallery, we, I reinvested it in efforts towards um, vocational um, vocationally training more more inhabitants. And I think that's something that's that 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 that's crucial. That people also have to realize, um, as Joshua enumerated previously, that there is sort of, I mean, what I did was more creatively inclined. But I think what people are beginning to realize is that it's a billion-dollar informal sector that is not really being taken seriously or being approached in a in a in, in a meaningful way. And so I think people need to change the attitude towards what um, electronic waste is and sort of the opportunities that lie, because I don't think that, I, I think to simply discard it as waste is, you know, there's an irony, you know, imbued there because, because it's just sort of like undiscovered um, um, resources that just need to be channeled towards the right value chains, you know? Um, Josh, I wonder if we go back to you, I know that you're doing a lot of development aid work in, in Africa, and there's a lot of that happening on the continent. Um, do you think the work that's currently happening is transformational for the waste sector? Um, and if there's anything missing of how it could be done better? Yeah, I definitely think it's going in the right direction. I mean, the, the power of donor actors in, in these fast growing cities will always be thought of, in my mind, as development acupuncture. So can you 
prove a business concept that young entrepreneurs will will visualize and then run away with? Can you kind of spark a fire that that breeds inspiration naturally? Um, but kind of one of one of the things that I've seen other than technology applications are cooperative movements. You know, there's actually a, a an organization called the Global Alliance of Waste Pickers, which is uh, doing some very impressive work. Um, and, and another item that people are thinking of is, can we apply fair trade principles to the waste recycling sector? So, I mean, every time a barrel of oil drops in price, uh, you know, you're, you're putting waste pickers out of business. So, you know, fair trade did the same thing with, uh, you know, with other commodities like bananas, the Rainforest Alliance has done it. And now there are some companies like Plastic Bank and Thread and Plastics for Change and Hope for Plastic. And they're all getting on this idea just in the last two years that, you know, can you sell plastic and waste commodities at a premium and use that premium to subsidize decent livelihoods and fair wages for uh, local waste workers in Africa? Um a question for Joseph, I think, because we've talked quite a lot about the informal sector and you, you, you mentioned kind of the working conditions and I think we had a photo of you standing on top of a load of motherboards. And I just, how do we make sure that we address these poor working conditions? I mean, uh, Joshua's talked about fair trade and working conditions are all part of that, but how do we, what can we do to support the people who work at the dump site as well as changing the system? You know, it's a very good question because I think people have wondered, is it as simple as um, formalizing what is now informal? And I think to some extent, I, I don't think it, it, it's that's exactly the simple um, solution. But it's very hard because, you know, I think one of the difficulties that my team and I experienced and a funny anecdote was, for example, um, we donated a bunch of um, 10 standard issue gas masks to um, 10 um, scrap burners um, who burn the copper wires to salvage precious metals. And in, ex in, in an experiment, after making this, um, you know, small dent and this um, donation of 10 masks, when we came back, um, let's say about um, a week and a half later, to, like, to, to, to check up on the you know, working conditions and the, and the developments to see if they were using the masks we gave them, most of them really weren't. And so it just shows you that sort of, there's sort of like an, an education and a sort of, um, you know, I've learned that in working in places like Abobloshi, in, in, in the informal sector, trust is a currency. You know, people have to, you know, people at that level, um, you know, living below the poverty line need to trust you. And so sometimes that can be a challenge in, 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 in certain situations. And it's something that needs to be addressed, but it's definitely something worth exploring. But I'm confident in saying that, that I don't really have the answers to as of yet. Because, because, because it is, the informal sector, people need to understand that it, it is, um, it has a life of its own. It's, it, you, know, you know, it doesn't deal with, with the same, um, you're dealing with language barriers, um, access, you know, educational barriers and, and other impediments that make it difficult to, you know, to, to solve issues simply or, or effectively all at once. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe also it would be useful to ask Josh here a question about, we, we've spoken a lot about kind of the precious metals parts um, that come out of electronic waste. Um, Joseph just spoke about copper wire. Um, but we know in our laptops that we use every day and the opening of the session, that it's not just metals that are part of laptops and electronic waste. There are other components like plastics. Um, and I think the, the photo that we used um, of Joseph standing on the motherboards was also you know, quite a nice illustration of that. Um, 
Could you maybe tell us or, or talk to us a little bit about the role of design and how we design electronic products um, and how, how that could assist um, recycling in an informal place like Ababloshi? Sure. So, I mean, some of the design elements you could certainly tie to an extended producer responsibility model. So uh, kind of um, the collection of batteries and the collection of the more hazardous kind of parts of electronic waste. The, the manufacturers of these products will inherently know that they are going to be thrown away. It is part of their economic model uh, for people to continue buying the kind of the latest model of laptop and phone. And they know also that consumers in, you know, all of the developing and industrializing world won't have public subsidized battery receptacles and, you know, uh, electronic waste disposal opportunities locally. Um, so, I mean, I, I would I would challenge the private sector to say if it's as easy to export your waste into another person's dump site to effectively, you know, broom your problem under somebody else's rug, it should also be easy for you to repatriate these hazardous materials and, and bring them back. And when we're talking about the, the non-hazardous materials uh, in in that computer, like the like the plastic and the metal, uh, we we don't need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, just like uh, Coca Cola and and Pepsi Company and much of the developing world have a return and a deposit scheme. There's a very uh, robust plastic recycling market almost anywhere in the world that's not landlocked and has access to a port. Uh, and so that is a commodity that can be sold, uh, and and it shouldn't be ending up in dump sites. No, you're right. It shouldn't. Um, I'm, I'm conscious that we're heading towards the end of our half hour slot. And I just I have a final question uh, for Joseph here. And I think Sarah and I both um, have a, a question that we'd like to ask him, which is if you had a magic wand, you had you could pick any solution off the face of the planet. You had as much money, resource and everything to be able to fix some of the challenges that you see in Ghana with the e-waste. What would that solution look like? Cool. You'll put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> um, really and truly, it, it would be really and truly. Would it be an eco? It would be an eco incentivized way to um, recycle and um, generate um, value add from the negative externality of the dumping, which would go on to employ and empower the low income inhabitants there with some sort of. Um, um, structured employment and skill sets that don't really require a lot of education, but on a more vocational level. So it would be the recycling of, it would be the sustainable and eco-incentivized recycling, um, whether that be a, a plant or on a manufacturing level of the sort of um, um, industrial waste and the residue that does end up at the dump site. You know, um, and I think for me that, that, that that's really important because I think empowerment is at the center of solving some of these issues as far as the human aspect of it is concerned, you know. And I think it was Galileo who said that, you know, um, you can't teach a man anything. You can only teach him to find it within himself. And I think that has to do with what, you know, solving these issues are about. Human-centered, eco-incentivized solutions to recycle and upcycle waste. In this conversation, we have discussed the importance of a local community-centred approach to generate value from the dump site and to empower local people. 
We have also explored how Africa's informal sector is part of the systemic solution required to deal with challenges of the Agbog Bloshi dump site. That's all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast in season one. We look forward to seeing you again in future episodes as part of season two. But bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.